0: We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. If we hadn't had a chance uh, to meet, let me say welcome. Glad that you're here. I'm glad to be worshiping with you. If you are visiting, um, I'd love it if you if you stuck around after the service. We have a connect table. Um, out in the lobby, and we'd love to just get to know you a little bit more, find out about how you heard of our church, and uh, just answer any questions you may have about us. Uh, guys, I'm very excited to continue our study through the book of Romans, uh, but before we do that, we need to uh, pray for our time together and also pray for uh, Pastor Joseph. For those of you who have not heard yet, Pastor Joseph, uh, his, his father uh, passed away on Friday morning. It's a long uh, battle with cancer, and um, he passed away on Friday morning. He, uh, he is a believer. He's with Christ. He uh, lived in the Psalms, uh, Joseph said, and Joseph is actually going to officiate his funeral on Tuesday. Um, so be praying for Joseph. Uh, be praying for the, the funeral, and uh, be praying just for, for his family as they grieve uh, this loss. And um, as they lament the presence of death and look forward to resurrection, um, when Christ will wipe away every tear from from every eye. And so uh, we want to pray for him and then pray for our time together. So would you join me in prayer? Oh God, we do pray for our brother Joseph. Lord, we are thankful for him in the way that he loves this church so well, and we Ask God, would you be gracious and help us to love him well in this time? You've told us in your word that it is good for us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, and that we are one body, and when one part of the body is hurt, the whole body hurts. So I pray that you would knit our hearts together in love with Joseph, and would your comforting presence... Be near to him and his family as they grieve the loss of Joseph's dad. So be near to them, we ask. And now, a triune God, we look at this passage today in Romans 9, and we ask, who is sufficient for these things? In this word this morning, you have accommodated your infinite glory for finite beings, and we tremble at the thought. There are hard words in this text, Lord. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would use them. Use these hard words to make soft hearts. Overcome resistance and pride. Humble us and position us to be receivers. We look to your word as food for our souls. Lord Jesus, these are your words. Speak, for your servants are listening. Build your church to the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, on account of His blood and righteousness, we pray. Amen. Well, like I mentioned in that prayer, there are hard words in this passage. And unlike many passages in Scripture, they're hard, not because they're hard to understand. They're hard because they're clear. And before we even embark on our journey through Romans chapter 9, I have uh, two words of Caution for two different types of people. The first is the type of person who's sitting in your chair, eager for the next couple of weeks to be over because you have become accustomed to have a physical reaction against anything that sniffs of Calvinism. And to that person, I want to extend my heartfelt sympathy. I get it. I get the discomfort. I'm not being ironic or flippant, or dismissive. I truly do get it. I know that to have your view of God and salvation challenged is no small thing. I know that from experience. First coming to grips with the doctrine of election taught in this passage was agonizing for me. That's the best word I can use to describe it. So I get it. I truly do. But I want to caution you about the danger of hardening your heart to God's Word. If your understanding of who God is and how He works isn't going to come from Scripture, the question is, where will it come from? If our understanding of the doctrine of election isn't going to come from Scripture, where will it come from? So my encouragement to the person who's eager to leave Romans 9 is to remember that these two are the very words of God. Just like Romans 8. These two are words that are to be food for your soul. They're for your good. And you should receive them with gratitude. To be a God-fearing Christian is to come to Scripture with the kind of posture that says, whatever I find in God's Word, I'm eager to submit to it. Whatever I find taught here, I don't know what it is yet, but whatever I find here, is from God and is therefore trustworthy and good. So that's my word of caution to that first group of people. The second type of person is the one who's been waiting to get into Romans 9 and now hopes we never leave. This is the kind of person who says, you're giving only two and a half weeks to this chapter? What's wrong with you? This is the kind of person who's come to love the airtight logic of this chapter and has come to relish it because of its logic. It hasn't let the teaching work its way down into your heart. And in a twisted way, people in this group often come to relish the discomfort that this passage causes for the second group of people. And to that person, I want to issue this stark warning. To turn the doctrines of grace into an occasion for pride and haughtiness is to grossly manipulate Scripture and to dishonor God. The doctrine of election taught in this chapter should engender humility and gratitude. Right? If you don't walk away from this passage marveling that God has shown mercy to you and instead walk away using it like a weapon to whack other people over the head with, you're missing the point. So my encouragement to the person who's drooling over Romans 9 is to stop drooling in a sinful way and instead start marveling at God's kindness shown to you. And if you have no idea why Romans 9 is controversial, I assure you it will become clear this week and next. So enjoy the ride, I guess. This passage, brothers and sisters, teaches us about the sovereign trustworthiness of God. The sovereign trustworthiness of God. God is trustworthy. Kids, I want you to remind your parents of this. When you get in the car and you're leaving, you're going to lunch later later today, I want you to remind mommy and daddy that God is trustworthy. That's the payoff, that's what you get for submitting to what this passage teaches us. If God is sovereign, he's trustworthy. If God is sovereign, then all of the breathtaking promises of Romans chapter eight can be embraced without a hint of anxiety or insecurity. So let's look at this passage together. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So whatever he's about to say, he's not being hyperbolic. He's saying, listen, I really mean this. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, why would he say that? Think about where he is right now in the book of Romans. Paul is standing on the height of the Bible's Mount Everest. He just finished reveling and the greatest promises of Scripture in Romans chapter 8. The last thing he just said was, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now he's saying that he has great sorrow. And the anguish in his heart is unceasing. Why? Verse 3, 4, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Ah, so now we see. Paul is in anguish because so many of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, are outside of all of those towering promises of Romans 8. His people, his tribe, his family, Now, before we move on, I want us to appreciate Paul's sorrow here. His sorrow in Romans 9. It's not that his sorrow in Romans 9 is balanced out by his joy in Romans 8. Rather, his sorrow in Romans 9 is actually punctuated and elevated because of his joy in Romans 8. The greater the promises of Romans 8, the greater the sorrow in Romans 9. Why? Because he loves his people. And they are not enjoying any of the promises that he is. The towering heights of joy and the promises of Romans 8 remind Paul of the bitter reality that his people are outside of those promises. And it's worse for Paul, as we're about to see, because they shouldn't be outside of those promises. Christ is their Messiah. He's Israel's Messiah. He's the fulfillment of their scriptures. And because they have every reason to be enjoying these promises and aren't, and because Paul loves them so dearly, their unbelief is painful for him. And we can bring this close to home, can't we? I know this is true for many of you, but I myself have siblings that are not believers in Christ. And in a similar way that Paul's uh, grief in this passage is heightened because they they shouldn't be unbelievers, my siblings' unbelief is doubly upsetting to me because it shouldn't be the case externally. Externally, they have just as much reason to believe that I do. They were exposed to the same gospel that I was exposed to. And yet here I am, on the top of Romans 8 while they are in the valley of self-deception and self-worship and the sweetness of where I'm standing makes my heart break all the more for where they are. You don't think Paul maybe has cousins and grandparents in mind by name when he's saying, I have great sorrow and the anguish in my heart is unceasing. Some of you have grown children who are not in Christ. Do you identify with, with Paul here? Wouldn't you give anything in a heartbeat for their salvation to bring them into the sphere of Christ's love in Romans 8? Verse 4, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is a problem. All throughout the book of Romans, Paul has been proving that the arrival of Christ is in perfect continuity with Israel's scriptures. Paul's Christology is thoroughly Old Testament. Everything that Christ has accomplished in this book, all culminating in the two good not to be true promises. Romans 8, Pastor Adam reminded us about last week. All of those, all of those Works are built upon, everything that Christ has accomplished is built upon the foundation of Israel's history and scripture and promises. The adoption of Romans 8.15 is Israel's adoption. It was offered to Israel first. The glory, the promise of the presence of God is theirs. It's their covenants that we benefit from. God gave the law and the instructions and the worship of worship and the promises to them, the patriarchs that we inherit as Christians, and we truly do, right? Father Abraham really is our father. That's our history that we've inherited. But it was given to them. Those are their national patriarchs. And Christ himself is a Jew. From their race, according to the flesh, is Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And yet, when Paul wrote this, and even today, few Jews actually received Christ. They rejected Him. He's their God. He's Yahweh in the flesh. And they rejected Him. They didn't want Him. He's Israel's God in the flesh, and Israel didn't want Him. They crucified the God-man. And then, throughout the book of Acts, We see this persistent Israelite rejection of Israel's Messiah, which eventuates in the evangelism of the Gentiles. Paul says, I'm taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and the rest is history. We're going to read about what God was doing with all of that in Romans 11, momentarily. But before we get there, we we need to see this problem. Paul is grieving at the fact that Christ, Israel's covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, has been rejected by them. But this raises the question, if God gave them these promises and they aren't enjoying them, has God failed? That's the question. Does His promises really offer any comfort at all? Is He trustworthy? The unbelief of Israel seems to imply that we should not have all of this security for these promises in Romans chapter 8. If God could make promises to Israel that would eventually fall flat, why should we put any assurance in the promises of God in Romans chapter 8? Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as the offspring. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that God's promises haven't failed because he never promised that each and every ethnic Jew down to the person would be saved. God has always made the kind of distinctions that Paul is making here in this passage. right? Paul makes a distinction between ethnic Israel and true Israel. Those who are born of the flesh and those who are born of the promise. And not every ethnic Israel is part of true Israel. True Israel is all of those who are included in the promise. That is, true Israel is Christ and all of those who are united to Him. That's what Galatians 3 teaches us. And when Paul makes mention of Isaac and this whole distinction between the children of promise and the children of the flesh, he's alluding to the story of Abraham and his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. When you go back and you read the book of Genesis, you see that at one point in their lives, Abraham and Sarah begin to be insecure about the lack of heirs in Abraham's household. And so at this point, it seems pretty clear that Sarah is barren. And so they decide to take matters into their own hands and provide an offspring for themselves. So Sarah offers Hagar, her slave, to Abraham, and Abraham impregnates her, and the child is born, and his name is Ishmael. And God says, no, that is not the line that my people will come from. And in her old age, Sarah conceives and gives birth to Isaac. And the people of God come from the family line of Isaac not Ishmael, even though Ishmael was also born of Abraham. And he was even born first. And the simple point that Paul's making is that being born of a particular family, being born of a particular people, doesn't mean that one is automatically included in these promises. Jesus gives us similar teaching when he tells the the Jews that um, God could raise up children of Abraham from rocks if he wanted to. And the the proof that God, that, that lineage doesn't guarantee anything is found in Ishmael. Ishmael was also born of Abraham. So if unbelieving Jews were to tell Paul, we don't need Christ because we were born of Abraham, Paul would simply respond, so what? So was Ishmael. And he's not included in any of these promises. So then that raises the question. If being born in a particular bloodline isn't the factor, of determining who's in true Israel and who's not, what is? How do you get in? What is the determining factor to determine who's part of true Israel and who's not? We might want to say something like actions, our choices, what we do, what we will do, our free will, but Paul's answer is the sovereign election of God. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, two children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So now Paul continues to trace God's providence through Israel's history, And we see Abraham fathered Isaac and Ishmael, and God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. He elected Isaac and not Ishmael. He's making a distinction. And then Isaac gives birth to uh, Isaac, fathers Jacob and Esau, and God chooses Jacob and not Esau. He's making a distinction. He's electing Jacob and not Esau. And the point in the larger context is this. Again, the fact that God has chosen to save some Israelites and not others doesn't imply any failure on His part because He has always chosen to elect some and not others. This work of God electing, predicated on nothing but His own will, is not new to the New Testament. God has always done this. Now we need to appreciate the clarity of Paul's words here. Right, he knows, he knows that we would like to predicate God's election on our choices or our actions or our merits. We like that. We like that idea. We like the idea that God elected some people based upon what they would do or what he knew they would do in the future. That he peered through the corridors of time to see who would eventually choose him and then he chose those people based upon their own decisions. We like that. We like that idea. That seems fair to us. But Paul won't let us claim that. He goes out of his way to not let us claim that. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. But why? because of him who calls. He does all of this to make it crystal clear that those who are elect by God are elect for no other reason than that he has seen fit to elect them. He chose them. They're saved because he chose them and not the other way around. Now, let me give you a pro tip. A good sign that you have truly understood a Pauline doctrine correctly is that when you articulate it, it elicits the same kind of objections that he responded to. So you have a hint that you've understood Paul correctly if when you describe Paul's teaching, you start having conversations that Paul had. You have the kind of reactions to Paul's teaching that he received. And so let's check our work. When I I say that God elects some and not others according to his own will, according to his own will, and not based on anything they do or would do, choose or would choose. It's just his own sovereign freedom. He chooses some people that way. When I say that, what is the most natural response? Isn't isn't the most natural response, that's not fair? Don't we want to say that? Well, let's see. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Translation, is God being unfair? You wouldn't have to ask that question unless it were natural to ask that question. That lets us know we're understanding truly what he's saying. You think maybe Paul's had this conversation once or twice? You think maybe he's used to having this conversation? He so anticipates our objections that he voices them before we can? Let's see what he says. By no means, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now this quotation, this whole mercy and compassion quotation is coming from a glorious episode in Exodus 33 when Moses is on Mount Sinai God's giving him the law. Yahweh is giving him the law. And at one point, Moses begs him to show his glory. He asks to see God in his holy divine essence. He has the audacity to ask God to see what Isaiah would see in Isaiah chapter 6. And what it elicited from Isaiah was, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Moses actually wants to see that. He wants to see God's glory, and God gives him a qualified yes. He says Moses can't see his glory directly because that would crush him. He says Moses can't see his unmediated glory, his unmediated holiness, because that would consume Moses. Instead, God places Moses in the cleft of a rock, covers his face with his Hand and lets Moses see the back of God as his glory, as his goodness passes by him. And the point is that God is accommodating his glory for Moses. He's translating it. He's mediating his infinite holiness for for Moses so that he can handle it. And yet Moses still sees enough of God's glory so that his own face radiates with God's glory and thereby terrifies the people. The same holiness that they had begun to fear in God, they now feared in Moses because God let Moses see His glory and Moses was transformed by it. And God says God says that He's decided to do this for Moses. He's decided to show His glory to Moses and transform Him with it. He's decided to do this, not because Moses is so special, but because I will be be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And Paul is pointing out the fact, this this is an answer to the charge of injustice, because Paul is pointing out the fact that grace and mercy are not owed to anyone. And so God's choice of election isn't a reflection of faith, fairness rendered to the creature. It's rather a reflection of mercy rendered by God. Paul's doubling down and saying, listen, you're missing the point of election if you're wanting to quibble about fairness. You shouldn't want fairness. You should want mercy. The point is to be awestruck by God's glory and the mercy that he has shown us just like he did with Moses. You can't accuse God of being unjust for electing some for salvation because electing any for salvation is grace. He would be totally just in not electing any. He is totally free and totally within the bounds of his own justice to show mercy on whom he shows mercy and compassion on whom he shows compassion. Verse 17, now Paul makes it even more difficult for us. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. Why? That I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So he brings Pharaoh up as a counterexample to Moses shows mercy to Moses and he hardens Pharaoh. And this means that God is making a sovereign choice not only with respect to those whom he shows mercy, but also to those whom he hardens. This is crystal clear. This hardening is the counterpoint, the counterexample of mercy. God makes a free decision to show mercy to some and to harden others in their unbelief. Now, some have pointed out, and this is true, that all throughout the narrative of Exodus, we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart before, before we see God actually hardening Pharaoh's heart. And some have looked at that uh, fact and said, well, there you go. It means that Pharaoh was simply hardening, hardening his own heart and God was responding to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh made this free will decision that, the, and the story could have ended differently. But Paul is not walking back what he just said in verse 16. Namely, that it depends not on human will or exertion. It's not the case that God is merely responding to Pharaoh in an ultimate sense. As if the story of Exodus could have had a different ending. As if God was simply responding to Pharaoh. No, God had this plan in mind from the beginning. This is why I raised you up. This is why you're Pharaoh, Pharaoh, so that I could show my power. In fact, God prophesied about Exodus all the way back in Genesis 15 when he was speaking with Abraham before the nation of Israel ever existed. God told Abraham that his offspring would, quote, be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God said that in Genesis 15 before Sarah had even conceived Isaac. God promised to deliver the nation of Israel from Egypt before Israel ever existed. And I don't even have time to go through the rest of the story of Genesis, which is this elaborate providential plan to get Israel into the possession of Egypt, just so he could deliver Egypt in a powerful way. They find themselves under the, the uh, tyrannical monster of a Pharaoh whose heart, hard heart occasions God's wrath as he delivers his people, sending them out with, quote, great possessions. Prophecy fulfilled, right on the money. This is why Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God providentially brought Pharaoh to power so that he could crush Pharaoh and thereby demonstrate his glory in wrath and judgment. So to summarize, in this passage, Paul is in anguish because so many of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, are outside of the towering promises of God, and their unbelief poses a problem. It seems to imply that God has failed to keep His people. And if God has failed to keep Israel safe, can we really trust Him to come through on all of those glorious promises of Romans chapter 8? And Paul's answer to this dilemma is to insist that God has not failed to keep His people because not all Israel is true Israel. God has always exercised His sovereign freedom to elect some for mercy and to harden others. He's always done this. Therefore, Even though Israel's unbelief may appear to indicate otherwise, God's sovereign purposes are still secure. He is still trustworthy. Everything is still going exactly as planned. Now let me offer these three pastoral charges in light of this passage. The first one is simply to submit to God's word. Submit to God's word. Submit to God's word. To, to God's word and the teaching of election in this chapter, specifically, submit to it. Remember, you, you, you have a hint that you're understanding Paul's description of election correctly if you've articulated the doctrine and then that articulation elicits the same kinds of objections that he received. So let's check our work again. Right? What's the most natural response to the notion that God shows mercy on whom he shows mercy and that he hardens whomever he hardens? What's the most natural response? Verse 19. You will say to me then, who, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Yes, Paul, we will say that to you. How is that fair for Pharaoh? Aren't we asking that question? Isn't that the most natural question that bubbles up within us? How is that fair for Pharaoh? What's Paul's answer? Verse 20, but who are you, O man? to answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul's answer to our demand for God to explain himself is simply watch your tongue. Remember who it is you're talking to. He's the creator, you're the creature. He is the potter, you're the vessel. Your responsibility is to submit to him, not to demand that he satisfy your needs for him to explain himself in a way that you understand. You see, we've completely misread the situation. We have totally misread the situation. If we look at the biblical teaching and demand that God give some sort of account of why his actions are just according to our standard of justice, we have totally misread the situation when we do that. When we put God in the witness chair and tell him that he must square the circle for us, we put God in the witness chair and tell him that he must explain himself in a way that satisfies our expectations for justice. When we do that, we are by necessity making ourselves the standard of justice and thereby making ourselves God. Scripture describes God as holy and righteous. He is the standard for justice. Brothers and sisters, what standard are we appealing to? What standard are we appealing to when we demand that he give an account of his actions that satisfy justice and fairness? Justice and fairness according to what? What standard is so high that even he must submit to it? This is the choice that is before us. Either God is the standard or we are. It's that simple. Either God is the standard Or we are. And I can tell you that in my early 20s, when I first came to grips with this reality, with the reality of this passage, I submitted to it reluctantly. I said, God, I know that this teaching about your sovereignty in election is true. I cannot cannot deny it. It's right here in black and white. It's so clear. I know that it's true, but I hate it. I wish it weren't true. I wish you were different, God. I prayed that prayer. But eventually, I came to see that disposition and that prayer as utterly foolish because God's total freedom and sovereignty is the very attribute that makes him trustworthy. This is what makes him trustworthy. This is fuel for all of my confidence in God. So when I, when, I, when I ask you, when I tell you, when I charge you to do the hard thing, to do the thing that feels like death, to let your previous conception of who God is and how he works die, that's painful. When I tell you to do that, I'm not telling you to do something that's painful for no good reason. I'm charging you, I am charging you to find joy in the glory of God being God. It's for your joy. Which brings me to my second charge, which is simply to trust in the promises of God. Trust in the promises of God. This is the point of this whole passage. God's not slow in keeping his promises. The one who made all of those glorious promises for those who are in Christ in Romans chapter eight is the same one who shows mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Which means if you're in Christ, you are safe. You're safe. In Christ, you've been shown mercy and you've been swept up into these unbreakable promises. Listen, brothers and sisters, when you were saved, when you reached out to Christ alone, by faith alone, when you did that, when the Father pronounced you not guilty and righteous, when he justified you, when he pronounced you not guilty and righteous on account of the substitutionary death of Christ on your behalf and the perfect life of Christ on your behalf, when that happened, When you were a Christian, when you came to Christ by faith, all of that was by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. You came to Him because He first came to you. You came to Him because God elected you from the foundations of the world. And the Spirit of Christ regenerated you and gave you a new heart, a heart that actually responded to the effectual call of God that drew you to Christ. He summoned you to Christ, and you had a heart that could hear him. That's grace. And so now, in spirit, in Christ, God's eternal, never-ending, never-stopping love is yours. Christ, who is God over all, is for you, Christian. He's for you. His promises are trustworthy. His purposes stand. And let me also say this. Completely consistent with this humble gratitude is a heavy heart for the unbelievers in your family. This doctrine isn't functioning properly if it it keeps you from beseeching God on their behalf. Let your heart be as sorrowful for your kinsmen according to the flesh as Paul's was for his. Listen, in the eternal providence of God, it may be your prayers and your faithful evangelism that God chooses, that God ordains to be the instruments to save them. Embracing your creatureliness, embracing your... Uh, vesselness, in contrast to him being a potter. Embracing that reality looks like you not willing to jump the gun and make a pronouncement that only God can make. So, when you're thinking about your unbelieving friends and family, it's good for you to develop the habit that I learned from a fellow church member here of saying, yet, whenever I talk about their unbelief. He's not a believer yet. She's not a believer yet and let that yet drive your intercessory prayers on their behalf. And third and finally, third and final charge. This is to any unbeliever who may happen to be here this morning. The charge to you is to repent of your sin and believe in Christ. Repent and believe. Guys, how like God would it be in his providential humor for an unbeliever to come to Christ by faith during a sermon like this one? from a passage like this one. Wouldn't that be great? The reality is, unbeliever, that the precious promises of God being for you in Christ are truly offered to you now sincerely and in good faith. Never has there ever been an individual who has ever come to Christ with the empty hands of faith only to be refused and sent away. That's never happened. So if you come to him by faith, and disavowal of your rebellion and sin against Him, if you beg for Him to atone for your sin and to give you His justifying perfection, Christ will gladly oblige. You're saying, how can that be with this passage, with this passage that we've just been looking at? Listen, This passage is giving us a tiny window into the providential work of God, but the words of Deuteronomy 29, 29 are still true. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children, which means you are not invited to try to run the calculations to determine if you are elect or not. You're invited to come to Christ. You wondering, am I elect? Come to Christ. If you've come to Christ, you are. No more questions. You're simply invited to come to Christ. And the glorious reality of this passage is that when you do, when you come to Christ by faith, you know what he does? He says, just on time. Now, if that's you, if you're an unbeliever, and you've come here this morning, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you've come to see what Christians do on the Lord's Day, to worship. I'm glad that you're here with us. And while my invitation to you this morning is still very much to come to Christ, it is not to come to Christ's table. This table, this communion meal that we celebrate every week at Emmaus is a church meal. This is for those who are members of Christ's body. And so, if you're an unbeliever, before coming to this table, you're invited to come into this family. Come into the family of Christ. So please, excuse yourselves from what we're about to do as we take this meal, and if you have any questions about what it looks like to join the family of God, we would love to tell you. We would love to introduce you to Christ. All of us who are taking this meal are, by taking it, inviting you to ask us about Christ. And now Emmaus, I want to invite you to come to this table in fellowship with Christ. Come to these ordinary means of grace. This is your Good Shepherd's table. He has set it for you in the wilderness. say, no, the hospitality team set it for me. I saw them do it this morning. No. They are the hands and feet of Christ. This is Christ's table. Your good shepherd has set this table for you in the wilderness to sustain you, give you one more meal on the journey into the promised land. So come and receive it with gratitude. Come and receive it for the fact that while you did nothing to deserve it, he has shown mercy to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you eternal praise and thanks because you have extended such goodness to us poor sinners, having drawn us into the fellowship of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, having delivered him up to death for us and given him to us as the food and nourishment of eternal life. Now grant us also this benefit of never letting us forget these things, but rather having them engraved on our hearts, may we diligently grow and increase in the faith that is worked out in every good work. And may we thus order and live our whole lives for the advancement of Your glory and the edification of our neighbors. Through Jesus Christ, Your Son, who lives and reigns eternally with You, God, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.